0: You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. For God so loved the world. That's a verse that I think many of you know. Even if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, or would not identify as a Christian. I'm sure you're familiar with that verse. For God so loved the world. Maybe you may have memorized that verse. Your parents taught it to you. They read it to you in Sunday school. I'm sure you've heard sermons mentioning that. Even from this stage, for God so loved the world. And as you have heard that verse, I think sometimes we miss what that verse does not say. The verse does not say, for God only loves Christians. The verse does not say, for God only loves straight people. The Word of God Jesus himself said, for God so loved the world. And that means everyone. This love is so indescribable that we sometimes have such a hard time wrapping our minds around that. I really believe for us to understand John three sixteen, 16, we actually also need to understand what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 5 what it means for God to love people. It says in Romans chapter 5 verse 6 that He loves us while we were still weak. goes on to say in verse 8, for while we were still sinners, not becoming better, not getting our life together, not even seeking God, especially when Paul repeats what the Old Testament says, no one seeks after God. And he even goes on to say, while we were enemies, God loves us, loves us so much that he loves us even while we were still sinners. And How do I know that? Because he loved me before I even became a Christian. see, I was not raised in a Christian home. We didn't own a Bible. My parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values. And I'm in the heart of Kentucky, so I'm not going to assume everyone knows what Chinese values are. (laughs) I could distill that to three things, obey your parents, do well in school, and practice piano. You see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I mean, I look different. Look at me. I'm different. I acted different, and I had different... I know, it's so cute. It was all downhill from there. (laughs) (laughs) Believe me. I had these different interests, you know, but I had this struggle. I had this secret that I kept hidden. And I kept hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. It was in my early 20s, much later than today, when people maybe come to grasp and are open about their sexuality, I came out of the closet, as I said, in my early 20s. I actually, I'm from Chicago, and I was going to school at University of Louisville, so I'm sorry I don't bleed blue, but I went to University of Louisville Donald School, right there on Preston. And after my first year, it was actually during my first year of dental school that I I came out. And after I finished that first year, I went home for a short little summer break. And I broke the news to my parents, and I told them, I am gay. This is who I am. Well, for my mom, remember, she's not a Christian. She, kind kind of being a typical tiger mom, thought she could control the situation. And she actually gave me an ultimatum. She said, you must either choose the family or choose that. She couldn't even say the words. Well, for me, this is not a choice. This is who I am. And I told my mom, if you can't accept me, I've got no other choice but to leave. And I did. I, went, I left and I came back to Louisville. Well, it devastated my mom. And, um, but through that crisis, my mother actually came to faith. My mother actually became a follower of Christ. You see, she actually, um, me and uh, her and my dad were, their marriage was a mess. After years of living as non-Christians, after after years of unresolved issues, their marriage was a disaster. And because of everything all kind of crashing down in her mind, she committed to end her life. But through that that process, my mother felt the need to go see a minister. She wasn't a Christian, remember, and who gave her a little pamphlet which shared with her the gospel. And as she read it, she realized that she was a sinner. She'd never heard that concept before, that she had missed the mark. Didn't mean that she was the worst of all people, but it just meant she was not perfect. And as a perfectionist, that was actually really freeing for her, and she gave her life to Christ. And it's so interesting because my mother had really committed to end her life, and actually, in reality, she did. One of her favorite verses is Galatians 2.20, "For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ living in them, my father became a Christian a little bit later, prepared my, prepared my parents for the difficult years ahead as I walked further and further away from God. While in dental school at U of L, I was I was doing what the, all the other students were doing, having fun, partying. And I spent a lot of my free time in the gay clubs and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, I always need to be really clear when I say this. I'm telling my story. And I'm not all trying to communicate somehow that all people do drugs or all people in Louisville do drugs or all dental students do drugs or even that all gay men do drugs. This is my story, and when I tell you my story, I have to be honest and tell you that story. But I also need to be honest to tell you that when you encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, He will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I was, I guess, a bit like you. I was a student, which meant I was poor, right? I mean, students are, what, middle-class homeless people. So I was lacking money, and yet I wanted to do, you know, go out and have fun, you know, try little drugs, which meant drugs cost money. If I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. And you know how I did that? I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was received my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So I moved from Louisville. And notice I'm saying it right, not Louisville, Louisville. Thank, thank you, not bad. Not bad for a Yankee. Louisville, I'm, I moved from Louisville to Atlanta. And there I kept doing what I knew how to do best at that time, which was have fun, enjoy life. This is all there is to life, so make, you know, make the best of it. I kept partying. I was going out to the clubs there. And I was not just a dealer. I actually became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator, because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no idea that I was doing drugs or even selling drugs, but they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to the love of Christ, and I wanted nothing to do with it. They came to visit me one time in Atlanta, and I told them to get out. You know what's so interesting? They were not preaching at me. They were not telling me that I was living in sin, but just the fact that God had so radically transformed their lives that they radiated Christ, that was offensive to me. And I told them to leave. I didn't even give them an opportunity to call up their friends to pick them up. You see, you hear the narrative today that Christian parents cannot, are unable to love their gay children. You have to shut off those so-called ancient archaic teachings, become agnostic and atheist, or a progressive Christian. But I had the exact opposite experience. My parents were not Christians. They could not accept me and rejected me. It wasn't until they became true followers of Christ that they knew that they could do nothing other than to love their gay son as God loved them while they were still sinners. And so I kicked him out, but before my dad left, he actually wanted to give me something, and it was his very first Bible. And it wasn't a book that he had never really opened before or only opened in Sunday services or in chapel. He actually read it every single day, and I could tell because he was dog-eared. He'd written in it notes in the margins, highlighted, and I told my dad, Don't even think that I actually might read it. Don't give that to me. But my dad, he's a bit persistent, and he left it on my kitchen counter anyway and walked out the door. And as soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God and certainly nothing to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was more than obvious to my parents that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus upon the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over 100 prayer warriors from their church From their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mother began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. That's a bold prayer for a mother to make. That's a bold prayer for a Chinese mother to make. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would spend hours, literally hours, every single morning in her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, crying out to God, interceding for me, for many, many others. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. (laughs) I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana, which is legal in much of the United States today. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlantic City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that actually get me more into trouble than anything else. Well what I didn't know was that I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, my mom loved those bold prayers. Well, she had prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way. God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So beware of your mother's prayers. They're going to come true. (laughs) (laughs) So I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness, that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul is not saying that it's God's anger. It's not saying that it's God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out His grace and drawing me to Himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was... Excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not. Because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone happened to be a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape. And she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place <laughs> compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessing was longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block, and actually, I was doing all that I could to stay to myself. I mean, think about it. I did not want to mingle very much with those really, really bad people, you know, those criminals. (laughs) and I passed by this garbage can. And if you've never been to jail before, you wouldn't know that they don't take the trash out every day. So it was a mound of trash. And as I, as I looked at this mound of trash, I thought to myself, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. Something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over. I picked it up. And it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I was not thinking this is the Word of God, and I certainly wasn't thinking this is going to be the answer to some of my problems. Actually, I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple of weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. I was handcuffed. I shuffled it into her office. I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words, and she couldn't even give me eye contact. So she wrote something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read, H-I-V-Positive. A few days after, I was laying in my bed, just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie there and I look at the cold metal bunk above me. Someone had scribbled something, and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that just as God could have a plan for Israel in exile. In rebellion, God could have a plan for me in prison, in exile, in rebellion. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my idols. The most obvious was drugs. Within a few months, he delivered me from that. God kept bringing to mind other idols, and there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. And to my surprise, the chaplain actually told me the Bible does not condemn homosexuality, and he even gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. Can I just tell you from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find any verse that would, not, that, would, that would actually bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and His Word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was but also how I lived, or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? How? By freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires, whether sexual or romantic, to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I learned several important lessons. First of all, I learned that abstaining from sex is actually possible. I know that might sound weird to you because maybe all your friends are telling you it's not. Maybe the world is telling you it's not. I was not a believer and everyone around me kept telling me it's not possible, but it actually is. Who knew? Second, I learned that abstaining from sex is not going to make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. Third, I realized that after abstaining from sex for a little while, that actually my sexuality does not have to be, actually shouldn't be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and that is true. But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I add it, so therefore He doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But you know, I learned from the Bible, after reading it several times, that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say it again. This is so important. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. You see, my identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It is not even heterosexual, for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must, Be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, God says, Be holy, for I am holy. Behind me has the words, Holiness unto the Lord. Be holy, for I am holy. You know, before I became a Christian, I thought if I were to become a Christian that I would have become what we call a heterosexual, which meant the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. <laughs> but I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation. I would still need to resist sin like everyone else. So actually, heterosexuality is not the goal. And think about this. God never says, be heterosexual, for I'm heterosexual. God did not say, be heterosexual, for I'm heterosexual. It's really important. God did not say, be heterosexual, for I'm heterosexual. God did not either say, be homosexual, for I'm homosexual. God said, be holy, for I am holy. So, therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of everything is holiness. If, there were, if we were holy, then there would be no need for Christ. That is all of our goal, to be holy. Holy. And so I realize that change is not the absence of struggles. God doesn't promise you, oh, come to Jesus, and you'll never struggle again. I don't find that in the Bible. He never even says, come to Jesus, and you'll never be tempted. But the words, I mean, it's, change is not the absence of temptations or struggles, but change is the freedom to be holy even in the midst of our struggles, even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized that no matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. Which, by the way, I spent most of my free time just a few miles from here in FMC Lexington. You guys know there's a federal prison not too far from here? Surprise. (laughs) But... Uh, God shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of. And with only about a year left for my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called and collected my parents, told them I think God's calling me into ministry, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time called Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. (laughs) They mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling it out until I got to the last page where I realized that I needed references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. (laughs) But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my reference to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? (laughs) (laughs) I graduated from Moody in 2005. Went to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, received my doctorate of ministry from Bethel Seminary, and then in 2011, I received my doctorate of ministry from Bethel Seminary. Uh, and then, to, I'm sorry, 2011, I was able to have the honor of co authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We've actually co authored it together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote, my mother wrote all the odd chapters, she wrote the even chapters, because we wanted to tell you from our own voice. Same story told from two totally different perspectives: the parent, to prodigal. This book now is in seven different languages, and uh, Christian high schools are using it as a textbook even. And then my newest book, called *Holy Sexuality and the Gospel*, helps us understand sexuality from God's eyes. Because too often, the message about sexuality from a Christian view is something like this: "Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this." And those may be important, but, you know, you can't build a Christian life on God's no. What's God's yes? And God's yes actually is quite simply chastity and singleness, which most of you, probably I'm guessing, are not married, and so God is calling you chastity and singleness. And as many of you may marry, then the other path is either chastity and singleness or faithfulness. In biblical marriage, and that is good news for all. You know, it's quite amazing as we look at the love of God. God loves us so much to send His Son, not so He can pat us on the back and say, oh, you do you. He's calling you to say, you are Lord. And that means that we deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily, and follow Him. I'm not going to assume that everyone in this room agrees with me. I'm not going to assume that everyone agrees with me what God says in His Word. I'm not going to agree that everyone's happy that I'm here. But let me tell you a little bit how unique it is that I'm here today. In the summer of 1993, I was here. Actually, right up there in the balcony at some conference. It was on sexuality. My mother, who just came to Christ, brought me, and I hated every second that I was here. Maybe similar to you. The message was offensive. The message about God was ridiculous. But God loved me anyway. And I hope that in His loving-kindness, He would reveal to, to you today the depth and the breadth and the height of his love that goes beyond our expectations.